Amen. I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter number 3. Our reading will be the same reading that we've had for the last several weeks. Take our reading from verse number 1 to verse number 11 this morning. But our emphasis will be in verses 4 through verse 9, that first portion. And then we'll give ourselves the next time we're in the book of Philippians um, to the remainder of verses 9 through 11. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin our reading with Paul's words in verse number 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, and the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you this morning just to pray, to seek your power, to seek your guidance, Father, even to see in this thing, uh, to, to seek in this moment, Father, your counsel, that you would help and aid us. Father, more than anything, we come just because it's what we do. Father, as a child comes to his father to simply commune, talk about the day, ask questions, seek counsel, desire comfort. Father, we enter in boldly into your presence, knowing that you're not only there, Father, but that our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is at your right hand. And Father, as the hymn writer says, we run to him in this moment. Father, because we know that outside of Him we can do nothing. We know, Father, that in Him we can do all things according to Your will. So, Father, we pray this morning that this moment um, we, would, we would labor in Christ and in Christ alone. That He would be the pursuit of all of our efforts, Father, and He would be our greatest delight and pleasure. We pray more than anything, Father, that He would be pleased in the next hour. Father, um, I pray that my desire is in line with His, Father, that, that a faithful sermon would be proclaimed, that the text would be handled well, and that it would be received, Father, with the utmost joy, because in it contains Christ, and Christ is the stuff of life. He is that which brings men from the dead and makes them new creatures in Christ Jesus. Father, He deserves a faithful sermon this morning. He deserves when He speaks to be heard. And He deserves when He speaks, those that are hearing bow down and worship Him 
and then get up and labor diligently, faithfully for Christ out of a love for Him, Father, and out of the, the holiness of being in His presence. Um, and Father, that's our desire this morning. If someone came with some other desire, we pray that you would change their heart. And that, Father, your Son would be exalted not only in the words, um, but in what those words accomplish this morning in our hearts. So, Father, guard my own heart. Father, as I read the text and proclaim the, the, the message, may you continue to uproot sin in my life and use it, Father, to make me more like your Son. In all reality, I still don't know how to preach. But I trust, Father, that your Son does, even in or lack thereof. He is all sufficient to accomplish, Father, what we can. So we trust him this morning, Father, by the power of the Spirit, as he ministers among the candlesticks, to minister to us, make his presence known among his people this morning. Father, this is our great need. Go with us now, in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> had the great privilege this week and part of my reading um, to read of a man by the name of John Patton many of you know of him he is a faithful man a man of generations gone by um, who was more than a man he was a Christian he was saved by the grace of God and God used him and seemingly a unique way to reach a cannibalistic people in the New Hiberty Islands. God would implant that desire in some seed form um, as early as the age of 12, he would recount. Desiring to be a missionary, God working in this little one's heart. He wouldn't bring it to fruition until almost two and a half decades later in his mid-30s. Although the desire would never wane. God would eventually bring that to pass and he would land there on the borders of a cannibalistic, um, totally depraved culture in which, because of that, even his presbytery told him that he shouldn't go. Why? Because years before, even a decade before on multiple accounts, as soon as men and women would hit the ground or the soil on, those, um, on that land, and they, some of them were immediately slaughtered, uh, many of which names you will never know. I mean, you look at that and you wonder, or many would wonder, what was the purpose in all of that? What a wasted life. I mean, those faithful men and those faithful women um, could have redirected and utilized the ministry more fruitful in safer places. Yet you wonder in heaven what they will say. And you'll ask them, as you see them now, I trust that we will have at least some recounting. As even the men and women, the martyrs who pray for justice in heaven, for what happened here on earth, that there will be some recollection of the deeds that men have done that will reign throughout all eternity. We will remember. We will remember with a perfect knowledge, I think, without sin Bearing us down and making us wonder and question those realities. But uh, how many men and women we will meet in heaven. I'm in that eternal state. Which you've never heard of. And of which 
volumes will have never been written. But as was mentioned earlier, their names were written in the book of life. Seemingly forgotten, just two generations after. Um, you wonder what will they say if you were to ask them, was it worth it at all? Should you have done something different? Maybe some will say yes. Because they did it for their own selfish reasons. They understand that there are religious zealots that do that all the time, even under the banner of Christianity. Yet at the same time, there are those faithful saints who serve Christ for even but a moment. And whom I trust will say, it was worth every moment. Although they were brief, for the cause of Christ, that moment will weigh an eternity more than 80 years lived for self. And that's the reality. John Patton um, seems to be one of those men in whom we remember for whatever reason. God has determined to keep his name in the annals of history. Um, as an example for us of the unique nature of some men. But, but really, should it be unique at all? We look at that and we see almost a, a type of, of Christianity that seems other than, nom, than regular Christianity. Nominal Christianity, we may call it. And we somewhat layer the body. And we layer Christianity as a whole as the seeming degrees of Christianity. And in some sense, we recognize that's a reality. That's a reality. Why? Because we are on this progress or this process called sanctification. And there are babes in the faith who couldn't carry quite the weight. There are believers who remain in immaturity for whatever reason um, under the care of elders and spiritual fathers who continue to, 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 to labor alongside them. And then there are young men who have grown in the faith. And then there are fathers with that spiritual maturity of a John Patton and with spiritual discernment to give his life um, for that cause, laboring even at the cost of his wife and one of his children as they labor there on the missionary field. And you look at them and you almost say, like, that's a different type of Christian, but in, let me ask, in all reality, is that true? Is there some other type of Christian and that other than the type that when he sees Christ, when she sees Christ, counts everything as prior to that as loss and thus takes up their cross and follows Jesus, losing their life, saving it by means of the very grace of God. Is there any other Christianity in the Bible than that? And that while it may manifest itself in unique ways which are recorded for us in the annals of history, and we look back to those men and women as examples, while those men and women are real, and they seem to tower above the rest, I'm convinced this morning that there is no other Christianity. That while... It may seem much more mundane in our lives. That um, even my life, I'm convinced. My, ch my grandchildren may remember me, but after that, that's it. Um, but that's not to say that my life and your life is any less important of, of importance than John G. Patton or the Apostle Paul. The reality is, is that when you come to Christ, your life is a different life. I look at my life. And I think that this is a life that is different than the life I would have led. 
It may not manifest it as great and glorious as some, but it is no less a miracle of God's activity in our lives that He would take dead men, bring them to life, and give them desires of which they would have otherwise never had. I look at my life and I think, I am here because of God's grace and God's grace alone. Had He not, it would have been totally different. And I think that that's what we'll see here in the text this morning. When we approach Philippians chapter number 3, the Apostle Paul has redirected his loving care for this church at Philippi. And after exalting the cross of Jesus Christ, he now turns and labors for, on behalf of their, um, of their spiritual life and safety and begins to exhort, encourage, and instruct them in what, they are, in, in, in what they are to receive from a teaching perspective. And in doing so, he, he gravely warns them about one particular people. And that particular people is what we've called, boys and girls, the Judaizers. You'll remember, if you were with us, the Judaizers are those quote-unquote Christians who are not really Christians at all. Um, they are professing believers who have, a, who have accepted in, from a mental perspective... Um, even a theological perspective, all of the tenets of the Christian faith, but in adding one, circumcision, and, and, and by virtue of that, the whole law of the Old Testament, in making it a requirement for salvation, they have negated the whole gospel. Thus the Apostle Paul sees that running rampant, no doubt, throughout the New Testament church. He's, he's dealt with it on more than one occasion, such as in Acts chapter 15. You'll see it in the book of Galatians. And he knows that that is a threat to the church here at Philippi. So he points his spiritual sights upon this people to help and to aid the church at Philippi to identify those who may come in and infiltrate the flock of God, seeking to lead them astray with the false gospel. And he does it with the most scathing of identifiers and a trifecta of words of the word beware in verse number two and he sees it so grievous and such a a burden upon his heart that this is probably not the only time that he has told them but in verse number one he says it's not troublesome for me to remind you but it is safe for you it is for your spiritual safety that i say the same things once again so you're hearing this for the last several weeks, you may be like, why do you keep repeating yourself? Well, I would just quote verse number one. Because it's not troublesome for me, and it is safe for you. Um, why? Because this is not something and a reality that is unique. False teaching and false gospel is not something that is unique to Christianity in the New Testament age. But for the last 2,000 years and even prior to that, um, the, the devil, Satan, the world, and even the flesh, even of his own accord, corrupt the gospel. Um, and you'll see that even in Paul's heart and life here um, this morning. Thus he declares, beware, beware, beware. Look out for the dogs, the evil working workers, and those who are of the mutilation, or the concision, the King James renders it. Beware of those dogs, those men um, who lead people astray, who are a threat to the spiritual safety of men and women within churches who will consume you. And when you, it, when you sum it all up and put it into the column, know this, that all of their work, even in their sincerity and their, genu their genuine nature, and even in all of their zeal, convinced of it to the, in, the, in the recesses of their souls, and it's built into their DNA, um, know that it's evil. It's evil work. Let's beware of who? The mutilation. 
Paul, in that, identifies the group of people, the concision. It's a play on words. And he contrasts it in verse number 3 with the true circumcision. He says, we are the true circumcision. They are the concision. They're the mutilators, not only of the flesh of men, who have distorted the sign that God gave to point toward the covenant-keeping God in Christ and the promises that He would fulfill, that Christ would circumcise your hearts. And when Christ comes, that's done away with. And beware of those who continue to mutilate the flesh of men, making it a requirement for salvation in tandem with the rest of the gospel that's changing the whole nature of the gospel um, altogether. And he goes on to say, for we are the circumcision. And he turns in a positive note to, to help them distinguish between false teachers and true teachers, a false gospel and the true gospel, to now mark out those that are believers. He says, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who have received the inner work of God and regeneration. And it's not in an arrogant or a prideful way. But it is in, you'll see in a humble, to be received in the, the utmost humility, that it is God's grace upon their lives. So Paul is not boasting in and of himself as if, as if he is attained. He'll actually tell you in just a moment. He hasn't and he won't until he sees Christ face to face and Christ makes him like him. Um, so this is not in a boastful, arrogant way, but it is in a desire for them to understand the true work of God in the heart of every believer. And it gives them three marks um, in direct contrast to what the teachers um, of Judaism, or, or Ju- the Judaizers are, are teaching, the apostate Judaizers. And what are those marks in verse 3? Those who worship God, the true circumcision made of those who worship God in the Spirit, those who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and those who have no confidence in the flesh. Those direct contra- in direct contrast to those um, who are worshiping God in the temple, seeking Him by physical means, apart from the worship of the Spirit of God, apart from depending upon the Spirit of God, and also those who rejoice in Christ Jesus, not in the law, as in Romans chapter 2, 23. And then number three, and those that have no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because they had confidence um, in the flesh. Thus Paul, for whatever reason, desires to give those at Philippi a further explanation of what it means to have no confidence in the flesh. So in verse number 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And Paul here launches into a personal testimony of his own life and gives himself, I would argue this morning, as a pattern for all believers um, to examine their own hearts and lives. You know, personal testimonies sometimes are dangerous things. Some churches have have totally diverted away from that in the corporate and even private type of worship. Why? Because personal testimonies oftentimes um, devolve into um, testimony or or praise of men. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that personal testimonies are bad altogether. Actually, when rightly um, delivered, can be one of the most edifying things that a believer can encounter. Some of you, when we set for membership, or some of you, when we initially meet, I'll ask, you know, how long have you been a believer? And one of the most edifying things is, is just to see Christ work in your life. Um, and Paul gives us himself, in some sense, for that purpose, that God could use it um, to edify us, to, to steer us in the proper direction. And, but also uniquely, God, I believe, gives us, Paul gives us, 
um, oftentimes his own testimony, for that very purpose of being a pattern of believers. And I'm reminded of 1 Timothy 1.12, where Paul actually does that. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern. Of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's conversion becomes a pattern to all those who believe and all those who will come to Christ. And in, in Paul's life, he almost answers all objections to the unbeliever. You know, First, uh, For example, some will come with the objection, I am too far gone. You, know, you ever talk to somebody, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what sin. Christ would never love me. Christ could not save me. And even in their seeming humility, they, they're an offense to the gospel. Why? Because they question the power and the extent of God's saving grace. Well, Paul this morning would stand, if that's you this morning, Paul would stand and say, you have no argument. I was the chief of sinners. That if God can save me, God can save you. God can save a blasphemer. If God can save one who was breathing out threatenings in the very opposition of Christ to what he would murder men out of the zealousness and the hatred of his own heart and the zealousness of a false God after reaching after that, listen, there is none too far for God to save. Now, if you're here this morning, you think there's, there's, there's something in my life that Jesus Christ can't atone for. Paul says, you don't know what you're talking about. You've not met me. And yet at the same time, in the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter number 3, um, he answers the, objective, the, the objection to the self-righteous. And there may be some here this morning that say, okay, I'm a pretty good guy. Not only am I a pretty good guy, I'm a great guy. You know? Let me tell you about all that I've done. You know? I grew up in this type of family. I have these accolades. I've, I've, I listen to my parents. I obey in every way. And while from an external perspective, yes, that is commendable. Um, but, but, but you will not stand before God one day and make that argument and say, look at what I've done. That Paul answers that objective. There, that, that, that there is none righteous enough to have any standing before God. That in one respect, God saves the worst of men. And in another respect, God must too save the best of men. And that if you're here this morning with a self-righteousness, you're thinking that you'll stand before God outside of Christ, that you have enough, it is an offense to the gospel and you should repent and cling to Him. If you're this morning without Christ, because you continue to... To destroy yourself and humiliate yourself with what you've done. You too. And you won't come to Christ because of that. You too are an offense to God. And you must come to Christ this morning. Paul will render with his life all men hopeless outside of Christ. And that's what our goal is this morning. And he does it with the self-righteous in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 4. As he expounds and expands upon what he means 
by having no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3 says, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And number one, Paul gives us an argument. The outline simple this morning. Number two, we'll see his conclusion. Verses 4 through 7, we see his argument. What's his argument? You should have no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because God's standard is impossible to keep. Well, how do you, how do you get there, Paul? Well, the evidence I'm going to cite this morning concerning that reality is my own testimony, he says. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. So in verse number 4, Apostle moves from the um, personal plural pronoun we and us, and he moves in that text to the singular I and begins to focus in on his own life and testimony and his own conversion. And he wants to give them no, he wants to leave them with no reason to have any confidence in the flesh. And what we mean by that is confidence in that fleshly part of the man, and that part of the man that is sinful by nature, who is born with a proclivity, a tendency, an inherent um, deceit of his own heart to think that he could be accepted before God. It's that sinful nature. In some sense, Paul here is going to expound upon the doctrine of total depravity, but not total depravity in the sense that we often think of it, that men are as bad as they could be, such as in a a case of, of a Hitler or a Stalin, but he's actually going to argue total depravity in the sense that men are corrupt to the core, and it may manifest itself, particularly in our context, of a local church, as well as Philippi, Galatia, and many other places, such as Corinth, and even in Antioch, it may manifest itself more, not, not as, as bad as men can be, but men are bad in the sense that they are, 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 are evil, in the sense that they deceive themselves in believing that they can be accepted before God. Um, total depravity. Men are born into this world, corrupt to the core, even, and it will manifest itself at least in one way. I've been thinking that a man has enough righteousness to stand before a holy God Carrying his own sin. Carrying his own sin. So Paul wants to render us this morning hopeless outside of Christ. And he does it by listing before you seven advantages in his own life. And there's more. He gives them seven again because it's a calculated argument. He's arguing against the Judaizers. Verses 5 and 6, Paul lists seven things. Um, to argue against the Judaizers that he has, that, that most of them, that, that none of them do. They may have part and parcel, but they don't have all seven. And actually, Paul could probably go on and add more. So Paul gives us, in verses 5 and 6, a description of his fleshly advantages, and I want to give them to you very quickly. You can divide them into four and three. The first four are inherited, sovereign, or providential advantages that Paul has by birth. The last three are going to be three that he has earned of his own accord. What Paul is arguing is is that there was a time in his life where he took all of these advantages, put them in a column and said, said, these are going to gain acceptance with me from God. And I stand before him, this is my argument. And I trust, and Paul trusted in his own heart with as much as he could believe um, that that was true. That God loved him and accepted him on the basis of that. Paul's going to argue, no. There was a time in my life when I came to Christ and I saw Him in the light of that. 
all that became loss. It became nothing um, in pursuit of Christ. So number one, inherited advantage. What was it? Circumcised the eighth day. Verse four. Um, though I might, all, or verse five. Um, I'm more so circumcised the eighth day. More literally, you could render this with respect to circumcision. I was an eighth dayer. It's actually only two words in the original. Paul uses an idiom that would strike home, no doubt, with the Judaizers. See, circumcision was the mark as we looked weeks ago at the old covenant people of God. And that in the New Testament, the Pharisees, one of the great um, crimes against humanity and God was that they had thought on the basis of their um, ethnicity that they were actually of the physical seed of Abraham that it made them even greater than the pagans. The Gentiles were dogs. Um, They were unholy and unclean and could have no acceptance with God. But even within the realm of Judaism, you'll remember that there were those who could come as a proselyte, a slave or someone that was a foreigner. They could come in and actually attach themselves and become Jews by proselytization. So they could become an Israelite at the age of 13, the age of 20, the age of 30. And when they did, they would receive circumcision. Within the realm of the people of God, it seems that they had begun divisions and factions based, and they had determined value and worth on at least one criteria here, whether or not you were circumcised on the eighth day or you were circumcised later in life. I mean, it's schoolboy tension, right? (laughs) You know, I grew up in this part of town. My mom and dad work at this um, company. Your mom and dad doesn't. I was, I'm here. I'm, I'm real. I'm local. I'm, I'm a native, you know. Uh, I'm a Tennessee. You're not a real Tennessee fan, you know. I mean, just, just this kind of inherited nature in which we like to divide. And it was clear among the Judaizers and apostate Judaism that they had begun to make these divides. And there must have been among them those that would, delineate value and worth and stature with God by those who were not only circumcised in, re, in contrast to the pagans, but also those who were circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, um, I was, because it, because it would signify in their mind and thinking, blessing from God. Providential, sovereign blessing. God saw fit to put me in the family of Israel, um, birth as an Israelite, such in, and to parents who um, loved the law of God such that um, they circumcised me. The eighth day. So Paul says, Paul says essentially, look, I'm an eighth dayer. I have, I had confidence in the flesh because of that. Number two of the stock of Israel, for the people of Israel. Again, in that day, there were many Jews um, and Judaizers who were not purely ethnically Jewish. It very may well be that Paul's actually arguing against against the Judaizers, who many of them wouldn't have been ethnically Jew. They would have been proselytes. They would have been Gentiles, Greeks, Romans who would have came into Judaism under the the banner of that teaching, um, Judaistic type of Christians, and they too would have made a division. Paul says, no, I'm pure stock. I'm pure bread, homegrown. Um, You want to see a guy who is blessed of God? It was me. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. He continues to narrow it down. Um, It's hard to really know what the blessing of being of a Benjamin was, but what you do find throughout the Old Testament is... Uh, places like 1 Kings 12, 21, Ezra chapter 4, that in the apostasy of northern Israel, um, there were two um, tribes um, of Jacob, two tribes of Israel that continued on faithful longer than the others. One of those would have been Benjamin. That Benjamin and Judah seemed to constitute for a period of time true Israel within Israel. 
the true people of God who followed God. Um, Paul is going to argue that not only did God see fit to give me family that would circumcise me the eighth day out of the stock of Israel, purebred, homegrown, but even we can narrow it down within the lineage in the 12 tribes, that out of the two, two out of the 12, I was one of the best. Um, seeing God's sovereign blessing. If there's any question about any of that at all, number four, he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Here Paul lays out the criteria from which one might say, you know, these people have advantage regarding circumcision, their stock of Israel, whose bloodline is clear. And within that lineage, one who could trace their line back to, to Benjamin, the favored child of Jacob. Clearly blessed by God and identified in times of disparity in the nation. And what Paul is saying is that you, know, you go through, say you're narrowing down, you've got 20,000 people, they're all within Israel, we're just narrowing down the best to the best. You can go through and pick out all of Israel. And sure, we're the chosen people of God out of all the pagan nations, but after narrowing that, who's the chosen of the chosen? Now, who's the Hebrew of the Hebrews? Out of all those, Paul says, it was me. I'm the best. I, I'm the best of the best. As, as with the song of the song shows preeminence, as with um, uh, Jesus Christ, God the Father, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, recognizes a, an inferior authority or, or a, a, a less splendor than that which is. And Jesus Christ comes and God the Father says, I am the King of kings who rules all over the rest. That The song of songs seemed to be the song that, that is elevated above the rest in in the Hebrew life and in within Scripture, and we read it, there is something that is that is inherently superior for whatever reason. Paul says, when in respect to the Hebrews, those that are out of the lineage of Abraham, like I'm the guy, I'm the guy, um, I am the best of the best. I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Not only that, but God's sovereign blessing. And do you see? But by nature, like I'm better. Um, three earned advantages. Number one, as to the law of Pharisee. Right? So even within Israel, Pharisee was a lineage that um, the apostle is going to argue, and we see throughout history, that is heights above in a caste system within the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 26 and verse number 4, um, Paul quotes, uh, you can quote Paul saying that after the straightest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul is saying that there were different sects um, within the nation of Israel, such as the Sadducees, um, who were spiritual liberalists. And in so many ways it departed from God's word, but not in the Pharisees. That in a degenerating culture, the Pharisees, and we need to understand this. I know that we see the Pharisees as the villains of the New Testament. Why? Because God has revealed their heart to us. But in the nation of Israel during New Testament times, they would have been looked at as the spiritual conservatives. Those who were abiding by the law, thus Jesus Christ can say to you and me on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, as well as them, that unless your righteousness exceeds that righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That actually, that otherwise, this argument makes no sense. You know, Paul is placing the Pharisaical sect, at least some of those in it who had a zealousness after the law. And Paul is arguing that he was preeminent. Not only that, but as to zeal persecuting the church, number two. But the, the Pharisees were no doubt a zealous people. And our Lord is clear that they would compass land and sea to make proselytes. They were truly evil workers seeking to build their own kingdom according to their flesh, Satan, the world, and the devil. They had a zeal that was unparalleled. Paul says, not only did I have a zeal to make proselytes, 
that went further, Paul says here, um, to even persecute the church, verse number 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Not only was I trying to, to, to employ people and to proselytize, but you better believe that I had set my heart against those that were enemies of the God that I served. Thus that in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, can be said of Paul, formerly known as Saul, he was breathing threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of the Damascus so that if he found anyone that, that, were, on, that were of the way, of Christ, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But the apostle Paul had set in his heart to not only proselytize, but to murder Christians, any enemies of God. And then finally, number seven or number three in the urn, as to the righteousness which is of the law blameless. What he means is in respect to Pharisee and the external um, aspect of the law, there was no one that could look at Paul and grab him and say, you've not kept it. You know? Um, you remember when Jesus says, yeah, you know, the Pharisees bind burdens and they won't bear them? You can't say that of Paul. He was blameless according to the law. Um, there was no grabbing a hold of him. Thus, Paul gives this, this catalog of his own of, of inherited and earned blessing that sets him in a category all of his own. And what he's going to say is he's going to, he's going to bring it around to the ultimate conclusion, which I've already given you, and you as good Bible students already know where we're going, that his conclusion is, is that um, that all meant nothing. Maybe even worse than that, that meant disadvantage, not just neutral nothing. But that was actually, those were things that were keeping him from God and from Christ. So number two, you only see Paul's argument, but what was Paul's conclusion of his argument? His conclusion was this. If my inherited and earned advantages cannot save me, then I count them worthless. Count them all as loss. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul's evaluation, verse number 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul's evaluation of these fleshly advantages inherited and earned that he argues, I want you to see in the text, former to latter, or former to present. So he's actually going to tell us what he thought that these things were. That there was a, there was a, a discernment in his own natural mind that he were pursuing these things, that when he weighed them, there was a time in his life when he gathered all seven of these and probably a hundred more, that he would have put them in a column and summed them up. And you know what he would have said? He would have said profit and gain in relationship to his status before God. That's what he says. These things, past tense, these things were gained to me. And Paul looked at all those things in a former life, and he said, these things will get me somewhere. Again, we're not talking about an apathetic, indifferent, nominal Jew. We're talking about a man who is genuine, sincere, devout, believer of Judaism in opposition to Christ. Not only that he was going to proselyte, but sacrifice even to the point of murder. Why? Because he saw that as an advantage. He saw it as a moral good. He saw it as a gain. He saw it as righteousness. He saw it in relationship to God as something that would gain him some status. I'm an eighth day or surely God will be pleased. I'm a Pharisee. Man, God will take note of that. The law, above reproach, blameless in the letter. In the letter. 
Surely if that guy can get in, I'm going to get in quicker. More. More advantages. More accolades. Profit, profit, profit. Earning total favor with God. 100% completely by God's sovereign action of birthing him in the right conditions as well as giving him the the internal fortitude and stature, the the genetic DNA, nurture as well as nature um, to to, to push himself to the top rung of of the Jewish ladder. You can imagine that if Paul's measuring his spiritual status on volume of acceptance with God, he must have also too thought, like, how much more God loves me than others? And that's where you go with works, you know? Like, if, if these works are enough to satisfy God, then how much more will he be satisfied with more work? You know? And no doubt it caused him to breathe out um, 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 patronizing thoughts of others that were beneath him. If this is what works... Do they set men at division and faction? And there's one day as he's working and he's laboring, striving for acceptance with God and love from God, favor and blessing by searching out Christians to murder them, and a heart of false worship and hatred. God does the most amazing thing in Acts chapter number nine. Two thousand years ago, God gloriously saves this man. Gloriously. How does He do it? By revealing to Him the person of Jesus Christ that He was divine. And at the moment, I'm I'm convinced, and this is, again, take it or leave it because it's not in Acts chapter 9, but it is in Philippians, that at that moment He saw His entire life standing before Him in direct opposition to Christ. On that road to Damascus, a light shines out of heaven all around Paul, and he falls to the ground, Christ speaks, and He says these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine what went through Paul's mind that we just described? I've given my whole life to you. Look at the call. Look at the prophet calling. You know, he's literally on his way to kill Christian. He's not the guy on a spiritual journey asking questions. Saul of Tarsus in that moment doesn't seem to be the guy questioning his life choices, wondering whether to give the green light to Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7 earlier, whether it was the right thing or not. No, he is convinced. He has resolved. You can imagine the surprise in his heart when he says, hey, who, when God says to him, hey, who do you think you are? To stand in direct opposition to me. Paul says, who are you, Lord? Christ responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So trembling and astonished, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise, go to that city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who journeyed stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing none. And Saul arose. You know what he does? He goes into Damascus. I know it doesn't always happen like that, a Damascus road experience. But for Paul did, and for some sense, I think it does for us as well. We're not 100% when that reality took place or if he's thinking all the th- thoughts that he thought in, in Philippians chapter number 3. But it could very well be in that moment as he meets Christ that, 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 that his life flashes before his eyes and his zealous resolve turns into astonishment and amazement there as he trembles at God's voice. Why? Because he saw Christ that day and in seeing Christ, everything else stood as worthless. His entire life, in that moment, realizing like all that was for nothing. That's his ultimate conclusion here in Philippians chapter number 3. You see that there was a certain time in his life where he goes from that 
present evaluation and he makes a settled judgment that in light of seeing Christ, I'm evaluating everything previous. And you know what he says that of that? He says, I counted it loss for Christ. Loss. The phrase I have counted speaks of a, a ruler or a judge in the noun form. Here in the verb form, Paul is saying, I stand in some sense judging over this reality my entire life in light of the, the new light of Christ. And you know what I do? I count it all. An accounting term, um, a, a, a judging term, a settled judgment. I've came to the conclusion after all the data has been determined. Like it was just loss. All seven attributes. What's loss? All of it. It changed immediately from profit to loss. I have no standing with God. And in some sense, actually disadvantage. They've been keeping me from Him all my life. My self-righteousness has been keeping me from Christ. In ignorance, maybe. In unbelief, yes. But it's been a loss. Loss is a term that not only denotes loss, but a sense of damage. Probably akin to a word that signifies um, by virtue of violence. Acts chapter 27 Verse 10, we actually see this um, word used as Paul is being taken to Rome um, under persecution to be um, judged according to the law there um, under Nero or under Caesar. Um, In Acts chapter 27, verse 10, they're going to board a boat. Paul tells them, wait a minute, if you board this boat, you're going to suffer loss, great loss. Not only to, to, to to the cargo, but or to the ship, but also to your life. And at one point, the storm is so bad, days in, they haven't seen the light of day, that they just give it all up and they start casting things over. And Paul says, or the, the text, Luke says there in the text in Acts 27, that they, they survived by throwing the cargo overboard and they suffered loss. Paul is saying that those things which were profitable to me at one time, my judgment is changed now that I've seen Christ. And I consider it all loss and still do. That if it stays in the boat, it will actually be more loss. To what extent, Paul, do you count it loss? All. That's what he says. He goes in verse 8 to expound upon that. And he says, yet indeed, I count all things loss. Why? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish or refuse or dung that I may gain Christ, he says. The Philippians may, the Judaizers say, to what extent may you count all of it? There was a totality in this loss. Every bit of it. I suffered. But it, but it may also be, that there may be two ways in which he's, he's describing his loss here. He may have equated, or, or he came to the conclusion after weighing it all, that not only are those seven things lost, but all things I've counted as loss. But here it seems somewhat different. Why? Because he says, for whom I suffered the loss. Of all things. That there seems to be something in Paul's life that he has suffered or come under, um, in which he calculates that because they were lost, for Christ's sake, I now must suffer loss. And it may be speaking of all of the advantages that he lost. That in coming to Christ, he now must lead a different life. And because of the conclusions and the settled judgment in his heart, now his life is not going to be merely Christianized. He sees his life in total opposition to what he was doing before, such that he abandons it all, not only in mind and thinking and heart, but also in life. Thus that Paul loses it all. He loses his position, he loses his prominence, probably loses his property, loses his religion, loses his friends, loses his professors, loses his family. Why? 
because of the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had calculated all of it in his mind. He had concluded that clinging to it, not having Christ, that Christ was more. That's 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. I would, include, I, would, I would encourage you to go read sometime. If you want to think about what the world thought about Paul and, his, and the apostles, the disciples. He said, we have become the scum of the world. You know? And the Philippians may be thinking, Paul, like, do you ever wish that you could have it all back? Do you miss it? Do you think for a moment that you could have stayed within Judaism and infiltrated the Pharisaical line and just flipped it on its head and took over? You know, like at any moment, do you think like there, that, 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 that you should have done differently? Or, or do, you, do you think that you should? Do you ever wonder what it would have been like to keep the comfort, to keep the property, to keep the status, to keep all of that? Do you ever, do you ever on, a, on, a, on, a, on a hard day just sit and think, what would it have been like? You know what Paul says? Paul says it's to the nature of what he thought. He says, no. Yet, indeed, I count all things lost. What do you mean by that, Paul? I count them a latter part of eight verse or a latter part of verse eight as rubbish. As rubbish. You may have a translation that says refuse. There's two different takes on this word, and both are legitimate. It could mean manure or dung, a pile and a heap of animal excrement, which is foul and offensive and unclean. That might be right. King James renders it that. It might be number two, the stuff you throw in the garbage at the end of the meal. Food that is rotted, table scraps unworthy to eat, that was fed to the dogs. Could be translated then refuse, rubbish, or filth. Either way you go, like it's not a flattering description, <laughs> you know. Um, in my own mind and thinking, number two seems to be what Paul's getting at. That along with the play on words with the, the, um, the, the concision and the true circumcision, I think Paul is actually making a, a, a play or a, a slight towards the Judaizers. I hope they read this letter, he may have said. I'll, I'll teach them a thing or two. Um, that J.B. Lightfoot, commentator, writes this. This is why he takes that position. He says, at all events, the meaning garbage, which is well supported from the passages quoted earlier, or in secular writings, is especially appropriate here. The Judaizers spoke of themselves as banqueters, seated at the Father's table, and Gentile Christians as dogs, greedily snatching up the refuse meat which fell from there. From, which, which fell from there. St. Paul has reversed the image. The Judaizers he now calls dogs in verse 2. The meat served to the sons of God are spiritual meat, manna from heaven, um, the very meat of Christ, circumcision, all the trappings of the Jewish system, which, which they valued so highly, Paul here refers to as mere refuse from the feast. Paul could very well be saying, apart from Jesus Christ, I count every rival source of righteousness, every rival source of pleasure as refuse, things that should be fed to the dogs. And you know what? That's perfect for Judaizers. Because they are dogs. And they'll eat it all day long. They're the only ones fit for it. A Christian, a, a, a true, those of the true circumcision at the table would never touch that. You know what a Christian, a true Christian won't touch? A righteousness apart from Christ. It's all of Him or it's nothing. He's either everything or He's nothing. And I think that that's the argument here that Paul is making. 
Why, Paul, might you say that? What is it that you have encountered? And we've already talked about this and alluded to this. And you as Christians know this. What is it in your life, they may say, to, to, to someone who's a skeptic or someone who's totally ignorant of Christianity. And they see this man who had everything going the way in his life that a man thinks that it ought to go. A good living, prominent position, contributing to society, a, a, a member of a community, a person who... who who could have gotten any woman that he wanted within the religious community, he could have been upstanding within Judaism. And a man looks at that outside the faith or a skeptic and says, why in the world would a person give up all of that? And Paul will say, I'm glad you asked the question. When I saw Christ, it all became nothing. What is it that caused Paul to turn? What is it that caused Paul to leave it all? What is it that gave him such confidence um, to where, there, where it seems that he had no days where he sat around and wondered what would it have been like? The grass may have been greener on the other side. What gave him such confidence? It is the surpassing knowledge, the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. His conclusion is, or reason for abandoning it at all, counting it as rubbish, only fit for the dogs, is because he came to Christ. And keeping it, he wouldn't have. Paul, in a moment, is awakened to the glorious reality of the holiness of God and the love of Christ and the purpose He was created. And when He examined His life in the light of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, the rest of it became refuse. The glorious cause of His loss is nothing less than God's gracious revelation of Christ to Him. Which not only introduced Him, but kept Him thinking, living, and reveling in the light of Christ to even that day. That's what Paul says. So Paul says, not only was there a time past when I counted it all lost, but he says, yet indeed, I also count all things lost. Some believe that Paul wrote this three decades later, 30 years after his conversion. You know what Paul's still saying? I still count it all lost. You know? Things I didn't even think of, they continue to be lost. Things I used to think were gained to me, I continue to count, well, I continue to count as lost. That Christ's knowledge... And, and the knowledge of Him, that relationship and communion that we've had continues even to this day such that in light of that union and communion with Him, I still count it all as lost. Nothing's changed, Paul says. Why? Verse number 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That this knowledge of Christ that Paul's talking about was, was, was more than just a data dump of content and a mental ascent. But it was a overwhelming, when he says to, to gain Christ, to know Christ, he's speaking of it in a more intimate way than merely ascribing to um, a statement of faith like the Judaizers would. Commentators refer to it something like this. This kind of knowledge signifies living in a close relationship with somebody. This is what Paul counts the worthy and of a value supreme to count all the other things lost. This is what he said. Such a relationship to what one might call communion, personal acquaintance, to know experientially by personal involvement. And, and in essence, this is the reality of the Christian life. 
You know, John 17, verse 1, the most explicit reference to eternal life, I think, he is. You know what John says previous to his prayer? He prays to the Father and he says, he prays to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you. And the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He goes on to speak of the knowledge. He says to know you that, that, that they know me like I know the father and the father knows me. That as Jesus Christ lived in union and communion with the Father in a lively relationship, intimate, personal knowledge in which the Word of God was going forward, the Spirit of God was operating to bring that to life, which would produce a faithful life, real union and communion. Paul says that I communed with Him on that day and I've been communing with Him ever since. And it is in that surpassing, excellent knowledge of Christ that that makes me count it all as loss. In a similar way, you men may speak of your wives. In which before you counted some things as valuable. But when union and communion and that marriage was consummated, certain things then came went off the table in that covenantal relationship with her. Why? Because the the, the intimacy, the union, the communion, uh, physically, spiritually, mentally, that life together, that oneness that God creates just makes so many things pale in comparison that I look back at the friendships and the boys and giving certain things up and they would look at it and they would say, you're a fool. What were you doing? You had this. We had this. And I would say, I had nothing compared to what I have in her. You know, I don't count it as loss. I understand that what I had that day, within that loss, I gained so much the more. This is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a knowledge within knowledge. Amos chapter 3 verse 2, speaking of Israel, God declares His special love for them. He says, only you have I known among all the families of the earth. So what does that, a skeptical say, an atheist will say, what does that do to your doctrine of omniscience? I thought He knew all the nations. He does. But he knows his people, his covenantal people, in a special way. There's a knowledge there, union and communion. That's that he could say things like, Mine elect one, the one I have communed with, been known, walked with, and made my presence known. He set his love upon them. And the same is true of Christ today with the new covenant people of God. Paul had met Christ on that day. And in light of that relationship, in light of that knowledge of God, which was brand new to him, he looks back and he looks and he says, it's all loss. You know, you may think I gave something up. But my settled judgment is, is that I had nothing before her. I had nothing before him. And it continues even to this day, right? I had to calculate how many, how many years of marriage we've had just now. So after 15 years of marriage, almost 16, I still say to this day, I've lost nothing. And it seems I keep gaining all the more. That's what Paul is saying. Not necessarily a physical, tangible relationship with our Lord, but true union and communion with Him through the Word, through the fellowship of the saints, through the presence of God, through the means of grace. God has made Himself known to His people. Paul says, on account of that, when confronted with that, when I see my life in contrast to that, it's all garbage. 
Another commentator, John Stone, says, quote, We might indeed understand the word all things in a wider sense. At this point, for an allusion to the fact which no doubt the Philippians knew. That for Christ, Paul had given up his early friendships, associations, most brilliant prospects, rising to distinction among his countrymen would not be at all unnatural. But the course of the thoughts leads us rather to, to take a more limited reference. The apostle, you observe, keeps still somewhat to the mercantile representation he which is already used, but loss comes now in a different way. This is the part I'm getting to. Feeling what I was wont to deem gains to be in truth loss, in that they kept me back from the Savior. Hearing God declare that all other trust must be put away by those who would be saved through His Son, I was constrained by sound calculation to lose everything. Sound calculation it was, true wisdom, as with the captain of a ship at war in hot pursuit of a prize of the highest value, does not hesitate to lighten his vessel and thus secure the capture by casting overboard much that is valuable in itself. For observe how he goes on, I was constrained to lose all that I might win Christ. This is the gospel in some sense. Matthew thirteen forty four through 46 speaks of a kingdom of heaven that is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. That when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold it all that he had and bought it. Previous to that, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The man whose heart has been awakened by God's grace as he comes face to face with the gospel, particularly Christ. It's like a man who stumbles upon a priceless buried treasure. Because of the surpassing worth of that treasure, the man goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. This isn't unique to John Patton. You know, this isn't unique to David Livingston, Mary Slessor. This is Christianity. It may not find itself at the stage that we think that it might ought to be. But in all reality, this is... Paul sets himself as a pattern of conversion for all believers. And maybe not even in all the dramatic reality of an Acts chapter 9 conversion, but in some sense, is that the reality of your conversion? Is the pattern of Paul's life the reality of yours? Again, not a one-to-one parallel, but in consideration of the spiritual realities here presented, what was true of Paul? Is it true of you? Did you see or do you see at this day that you are a good person or were a good person? Did it not capture you as you saw Christ that all you had done up to that moment really meant nothing? You were created for the glory of God. And up to that moment, you had been spitting in His face. But now you see clearly because God has enlightened your soul. That everything before was a hindrance to your coming. Until the Spirit showed you Christ. And in that moment, you saw the true value of it all. And all of everything became as nothing save Christ and Christ alone. And you say, I don't know about a point in time when that happened. That's understandable. Many of you don't. But just as I don't recall necessarily my, my physical birth, there's a reality that I am alive today. Why? Because I breathe. Can you say with Paul, not only I counted it all as lost, but to this day, I continue to count it. 
Is this your testimony today? That today Christ is everything. And outside of Christ we have nothing. Do you continue to seek after and pursue the ever increasing Christ in your life? Can you say 20, 30 years later that this reality is still true of me today and that Christ is everything and outside of Him the rest is nothing? And if this is true, brothers and sisters, number two, then your life, and this is the application, then your life will bear out this truth. Christian life is a life that you would have never lived before. And I hold, and I hold to that. Regardless of what you think it may be, and regardless, I'm not arguing that we should all be missionaries to islands of cannibalistic nature, and we should all sell everything that we have. Some men should, but all men won't. And all men should. But at the same time, when you have Christ, you're in union and communion with Him. There is a reality that you will now live a life that you never lived before. It just looks different than George Patton. It looks different than David Livingston. It looks different. Even in my own life, as I said at the very beginning, I may never be a Tyndale, a Livingston, or a Whitfield, but I will be a Christian. My life is already marked out by glorious realities that outside of Christ I would have never had. You know? I have family members growing up in a drug-infested, surrounded by alcohol, government housing, single mother, five kids, public institutions, and people who come along all the way, they examine my life and they say, Damon, you did good. It's a platform to say I did nothing. Nothing at all. You know? And then I have people who come along and they, and they just see somewhat of a mental aptitude and, and, and a diligence in certain areas and, and going to school. And I have, I have family members in particular and they look and they say, you could have done more. You know? You could have went on to school. You could have been prominent. You could have had this position. You could have been a doctor. You could have, you could have utilized that, you know? And they, they look and they think, like, they, they devalue the work of Christ in my life. Like, you know, they, some people saying, you did it all yourself and you did well. And then you got some saying, you should have done more. And I, and I look and, I, and, I, and it used to bother me and it used to offend me. But, 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 but now I have, I have it all. What else could you ask for, you know? That my life would have been different. I had plans. I had desires. I had, I had options. You know, that, that for whatever reason, that even in the midst of that state, you know, that God had placed me. I don't, I, don't, I don't despise it. I see it as God's providence to bring me where I am. And I'm thankful for that because it was God's to pro, his, his, his tools and His means to press against me my depraved nature and my need of Him. But even in that, I had these Things that I would have done differently, went different ways. But in my Christian life, God decidedly at different points as I'm communing with Him and reading His Word, I can remember it almost as clear as day. Son, you've got to go a different road. I know you want to go this way, but you're going to go that way now. You know? I can remember deciding that because I was reading the Scriptures and I, and I thought, and God wants me to be there for my family. He wants me to have a family. Children are a blessing from the Lord. I have this great and wonderful woman that is before me. And this is what He desires. And that road won't foster that. 
I didn't get all of that at conversion. But as God continually is in union and communion with me, and then even after that I can remember points in my life decidedly, that I'm, I've picked a different route, now I will pick another. Why? Because that stands in opposition to what Christ desires. That my life may not be, your life may not be a George G. or a, a John G. Patton. It may not be a David Livingston. It may not be recorded. And it may not be one that is remembered more than your grandchildren. Or, or, or written in the annals of history. But, it, it, but, but the simple life devoted to Him is one that can reign throughout all eternity as God honors it because you have honored Him. That because Christ is in your life, your life should and will be different. It will be a life that otherwise you would not have lived because Christ is more valuable. And all those things are as lost. And I look at those men today and I say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And I say to the other that, uh, that, 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 that all of that is loss for the surpassing excellence and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray that at, the, that at this point in your life and at the end of your life, that you can say with resolve the same thing, with confidence as you've walked with Christ, that this was the life He had me to live. And if this was the life that he had me to live, I have no regrets. And I have no loss. I have no loss. Or maybe today, you are here without Christ. If so, my prayer is that this morning, sometime throughout the day, sometime in the very near future, and if not on your dying bed, that you would see Christ. In all of His glory, stop striving to build up accolades, count it all lost, and whether with 50 years or 5 minutes before your last breath, you will revel in the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. That it will not only change your eternity, but it will change your temporary, the here and the now, regardless of quantity of time, your quality of glorying in Christ will be of such value that you will count the rest as a waste of your time and a waste of life. But this will never be. This will never be. Whether it's on a mountaintop for all men to see or it's sitting in a living room training your children up in the way that they ought to go or you're lying there in a, in a bed, you know, locked away from family, with no one to say goodbye to. Christ is with you. And He's all you need. If you're without Christ today, I beg and plead with you. Come unto all, He says to you, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will not turn you away if you come to Him. So as the hymn writer wrote the song that we just contemplated, I run to Christ. I beg you today, run to Christ. And saint, my exhortation is the same. That the Christian life is the life of continual running to Christ. Not only do you count it all lost once, but you continue to. And not only do you run to Him once, but let us run to Him now in prayer. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory that truly is in Christ Jesus. What a life, Father. 
that you've given to me personally, to the Apostle Paul, but not uniquely to us, but as Revelation declares to all, every nation, tribe, and tongue, you are so gracious. Father, you are beyond compare. Your son, Father, we have never set our eyes on something so tremendous, so beautiful in all the world. And I trust on that great day when we see him face to face, it will be as if we have not even known him in some respects. Yet at the same time, he continue to know him. That his beauty will be beyond compare, such that in this carcass, in this body, Father, we can, it cannot be contained or manifested. Father, that it is beyond compare. But we thank you, Father, that day in and day out, you just continue to pull back the veil a little more. Leading us and guiding us in that direction. Holding us fast. We're persevering in the faith, Father. Not because we're strong. and Not because we're bold. And not because, Father, we're, um, we're skilled. And not because we have great ingenuity, Father. Not because we've been trained to. But wholly by your grace. And your grace alone. Father, let us today see the incomparable riches of Christ such that um, it would not paralyze us in this life. We would not um, be so or too humble that we may think, Father, we can do nothing. But may it um, embolden us as Christ lives free and forevermore with full free reign such that we can cast off all things and follow Him. Father, and create in us and cultivate in us a life that we would have never lived before why because you are present among us father and you demand your presence commands cultivation of the fruit of the spirit in a godly life so lead us in those decisions father and first lead us in that initial decision that all things other than him are lost so let he be the great pursuit of our lives not only as individuals, but as families and as a church. Father, and we give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing number 380. My Jesus, I love thee. Number 380.